tonight, what I want to do is present one of the Buddha's discourses. This is the Discourse on the Fruits of the Spiritual Life. It's the second one in the Long Discourses, the Samanyapala Sutta. I particularly like this discourse because it shows the graduated training, the path of practice for someone when, from when they set out on the spiritual path all the way up to total liberation. I mentioned in the opening night's talk that the Buddha's teachings could be looked at in terms of sila, samadhi, panya, morality, concentration, wisdom. And this talk illustrates those points. You might see if you can notice which pieces of the talk actually fit in with those points. I'm going to give you my version of the sutta. I suggest when you go home, you read the real thing. Maybe I make a mistake or something. If you don't have a copy of the Long Discourses, there's a very excellent website called accesstoinsight.org, and there are some 900 translations of the Buddha's discourses on that website, and you can fairly easily find this particular sutta there. But I'll give you what I got. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living with 1,250 monks in Jivaka's mango grove near the great city of Rajgar, capital of the kingdom of Magadha. And on the evening that our sutta takes place, it was a full moon night. Now Jivaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha to use as a monastery, was the royal physician in the court of King Ajatasattu, king of Magadha. And the night this sutta takes place, King Ajatasattu was sitting on the upper terrace of his palace, surrounded by his ministers and other members of the court. And when the full moon rose, he uttered a joyful exclamation. Oh, what a beautiful night. Oh, what a wondrous night. Oh, what an auspicious night. Perhaps we could visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to my mind. You see, King Ajatasattu had a very unpeaceful mind. This was because he had killed his father, good King Bimbasara. King Bimbasara was one of the Buddha's first patrons and actually met Siddhartha Gautama before he became the Buddha. The story is that the king was looking out the window from one of the upper stories of his palace one day and noticed a recluse on alms round down below. And he noticed this recluse was not like the other recluses. He had a much more regal bearing. And he said to one of his ministers, follow that recluse, see where he goes, and report back to me. So the minister followed Siddhartha Gotama after his alms round back to Vulture's Peak, which is a mountain just outside the city of Rajgar that's honeycombed with caves and is an excellent place to go and live and practice meditation. So the minister returned to King Bimbasara, told him where this recluse was living, and King Bimbasara went to visit him. He inquired of Siddhartha Gotama what his history was and why he was a recluse and was quite impressed with the young man's credentials and offered him a ministerial position in the kingdom of Magadha. But Siddhartha Gotama wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death, so he politely declined. Whereupon King Bimbasara got him to promise that if he figured out what to do about old age, sickness, and death, he'd come back and tell him the story. And sure enough, after his enlightenment, about three years later, the Buddha did return to Rajgar and preached a discourse to King Bimbasara, and King Bimbasara was established in the fruit of stream entry, in the first level of enlightenment. 
and he became a devoted follower of the Buddha. As I say, one of his earliest patrons. But King Bimbisara had a son, Prince Adityasattu. And Prince Adityasattu was an ambitious man. He grew weary of waiting for his father to die and decided to take matters into his own hands. He went sneaking into his father's private quarters with a dagger strapped to his thigh and was promptly apprehended by the guards, who hauled him up before the king and said, Your Majesty, we found your son sneaking into your private quarters, and he had this dagger strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with a dagger strapped to your thigh? It's going to kill you, Dad. (laughs) Why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? You can be king. Here. So he made him king. But King Ajitasattu grew worried that King Bimbisara, who had retired now to meditate, was going to grow bored with this meditation stuff and want his kingdom back. So he had his father thrown in the dungeon. He couldn't really bring himself to order his father killed. He just cut off all his food. He did allow one visitor, the queen, The queen was very shrewd. When she went to visit her husband, she would smear her body with honey, and the king could live by licking it off. (laughs) When King Bimbisara wasn't dying, King Ajitasatu went to see him. Dad, how come you're not dead yet? Oh, when your mother comes to visit, she smears her body with honey, and I can live by licking it off. End of visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbisara wasn't dying, and so King Ajitasattu had him tortured. And during the torturing, he died. The commentaries say that two letters arrived at the palace at the same time. And the ministers gave the first letter to King Ajitasattu, and it told of the birth of a son. And he understood for the first time a father's love for his son. And he said to his men, release my father from prison. They handed him the second letter, which said his father was dead. From that night on, King Ajitasattu had been troubled by terrible nightmares. He would no sooner fall asleep than wake up screaming. And his servants would all rush in. Great king, great king, are you all right? I'm fine, I'm fine, go away, go away. And he'd fall asleep and have another nightmare. So, on the night of our sutta, he's sitting on the upper terrace of the palace because he has insomnia. And if the king can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. So, all the ministers and Jivako are all sitting up there with him. And he utters his joyful exclamation about wanting to visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to his mind. And one of the ministers piped up and says, There's Parunakasapa. He's long gone forth. He's the leader of an order, a teacher of an order. He has many followers. He's esteemed as holy. Perhaps you should visit him. He may be able to bring some peace to your mind. The king said nothing. And then another minister pipes up. There's Makali Gosala. He's long gone forth. You know. Each minister championed his own recluse or Brahmin, but the king never said a word. When the hubbub finally dies down, the king turns to Jivaka, who's sitting nearby. Jivaka, do you know any recluse or Brahmin we could visit? Great king, the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one, is living in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. You should visit the Buddha. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. So Jivaka goes running down from the top floor of the palace down to the stables below, and he has 500 female elephants saddled up, along with the king's royal bull elephant. And then he runs back up to the upper story of the palace and says, Great king, the elephant vehicles are prepared. Do as you see fit. So King Ajitasattu had 500 women of his court, seated one each on the 500 female elephants, And then he and Jivaka mounted up on the royal tusker 
and they rode forth in full royal splendor with torchbearers going before. Must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They rode out of the palace and through the city of New Rajgar, and then into the old city of Rajgar, now through the city gates and hung a left, and headed towards the mango grove. And when they got near to the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. Jivaka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king, no. Why would you think that? You said there was 1,250 people in this mango grove. I don't hear a sound. They're probably all meditating, great king. Look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. Go forward, go forward. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants and dismounted the king and Jivaka and all the members of the court. And they went into the pavilion hall. And then the king says to Jivaka, now, which one's the Buddha? He's the one sitting at the back facing everybody else. So the king wanders around a bit, checking things out. At one point, he's standing up near the Buddha. He surveys the crowd of 1,250 monks, all totally silent. And he says, oh, if only my son, the prince, could experience peace such as this. And the Buddha heard him and said, Great king, do your thoughts follow your affection? Yes, indeed, venerable sir. I love my son, the prince, very much, and it would be wonderful if he could experience peace such as this. And then the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the company of monks, and sat down at one side. And he said, Venerable sir, may I ask you a question? Certainly, great king, ask whatever you wish. Venerable sir, in my kingdom there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, horse trainers, charioteers, archers, spearmen, camp marshals, commandos, chainmail warriors. There are bakers, there are weavers, basket makers, There are barbers, street sweepers, accountants, statisticians. All of these people practice a craft, and it's possible to see some fruit of their labor visible here and now. Venerable sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that's visible here and now? Great king, have you ever asked this question of any other recluse or Brahmin? Well, yes, actually I have, venerable sir. I've asked a half a dozen recluses or Brahmins about this point, but they just preached their doctrine at me. They never really got around to answering the question. It was, it was like asking for a mango and being given a breadfruit. It was most unsatisfying. But I never said anything. I just went away quietly. So I ask you again, Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that's visible here and now? Great King, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your palace there's a slave, a workman, who arises before you each morning, waits on you hand and foot, sees that all of your needs are met, and doesn't go to bed till after you go to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. King Atatasatu is a man and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. That must be the result of doing meritorious deeds. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some later time this slave were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the saffron robes, and go forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon hearing of this, would you say to your men, make that man come back and be my slave again? Oh, no, venerable sir. We would pay homage to him. We would prepare a seat. We would rise up before him. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, Is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, yes, indeed it is. Uh, Venerable sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? 
Great king, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And when it's harvest time, he winds up paying a large portion of his harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. King Atatisatu is a man and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. While I toil in my fields from morning to night and at harvest time wind up paying a large portion of the harvest as taxes. This must be the result of doing meritorious deeds. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, if at some later time this farmer were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the saffron robes and go forth from the home life to the homeless life, would you send your men saying, make that man come back and be a farmer so he can support the royal treasury? Oh no, venerable sir, we would pay homage to him. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not also a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now? Yes, yes, indeed it is, venerable sir. Venerable sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, great king, and pay attention. A Tathagata arises in this world, a fully enlightened Buddha who teaches the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. A householder or a householder's child or someone else hears the Dhamma from the Buddha and gains faith. And at a later time thinks, household life is crowded and dusty. Going forth is free like the air. And then at some point, this householder or householder's child or some other person abandons his wealth, be it large or small, abandons his relatives, be there many or few, shaves off hair and beard, puts on the saffron robe, and joins the Tathagata's order. Great king, when someone joins the Tathagata's order, they live restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. The first of these precepts, great king, is I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. The second of these precepts, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. We have many precepts, great king. We are celibate. We tell the truth. We don't use harsh language. We are peacemakers rather than causing division. We don't engage in gossip or idle chatter. We don't take intoxicants. We eat only in one part of the day. We don't adorn ourselves. We don't go to singing, dancing, entertainments. We don't handle gold or silver. We don't use high and luxurious beds. There are many rules, great king. By following these rules, it makes it possible to practice the holy life. By following these rules, it makes it possible to live with our senses restrained. Upon seeing a sight with the eye, one does not grasp at its signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states, such as covetousness or grief, overcome one. When hearing a sound, smelling a smell, tasting a taste, touching a texture, thinking a thought, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states associated with covetousness or grief overcome one. By living with senses restrained, it makes it possible for us to be mindful of all that we do. Mindful when going forward and coming back. Mindful when looking forward and looking back. Mindful when getting dressed. Mindful when going on alms round. Mindful when eating, chewing, savoring, and tasting our food.
Mindful when going to the toilet. Mindful when sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. Mindful when falling asleep and waking up. Mindful when speaking and keeping silent. With this noble mindfulness, we also are content with very little. All we need is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if we're sick. This leaves us free to go wherever we wish, like a bird on the wing. Endowed with these noble precepts, this noble restraint of the senses, this noble mindfulness, this noble contentment, it makes it possible to do the work of a recluse. Upon returning from alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to the forest, the root of a tree, a hillside cave, a heap of straw, the charnel ground, the open air, an empty room. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, when practicing meditation, there are five states of mind that might rise that hinder progress on the spiritual path. The first of these is covetousness or sense desire. Since desire is like being in debt, if someone is in debt, they must continually work to pay off that debt. But if a debtor were to pay off his debt, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sense desire, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The second of these hindrances, great king, is ill will and hatred. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If one is physically ill, one doesn't feel well. One is hot. One can't think straight. One can, cannot do what one wants to do. If one is overcome with ill will and hatred, one doesn't feel well. One is hot. One cannot think straight. One cannot do what one wants to do. But if someone were ill and were to take medicine and overcome that illness, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome ill will and hatred, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The third of these hindrances is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If someone is in prison, they just sit there missing out on all the good things of life. It's the same with sloth and torpor. One is unable to practice. One just sits there missing out on all the benefits of the spiritual path. But if a prisoner were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome sloth and torpor, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fourth of these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry is like being a slave. One must go there and do that, come here and do this. One is busy all the time, but never gets to do what one wants to do. It's the same with restlessness and worry. One's mind is all over the place. One's body can't get settled. One can't do what one wants to do. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome restlessness and worry, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. First one thinks to go this way, but no, there might be bandits. Then one thinks to go that way, but no, there won't be any water. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. It's the same with skeptical doubt. One is unsure of what practice to do, what teaching to follow. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to arrive at a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome skeptical doubt, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. When one sees that these five hindrances are unabandoned, one regards them as a debt, an illness, as being in prison, 
as being a slave as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with initial and sustained thought, and filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, imagine a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice pouring soap flakes into a metal basin and then mixing the soap flakes with just the right amount of water so that the soap flakes are totally pervaded with moisture, totally encompassed by moisture, and yet the ball of soap does not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the subsiding of initial and sustained thinking, by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without initial and sustained thinking and contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, imagine a lake far up in the mountains where there are no streams that flow into it from the east, the west, the north, or the south, and where there are not even any showers of rain, and yet at the bottom of the lake is a spring of cool, clear water. That cool, clear water would totally permeate the lake, totally fill the lake, so there would be no part of that lake not touched by the cool, clear water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the fading away of rapture, by remaining mindful, clearly comprehending, and equanimous, one enters and remains in the third jhana, a state of which the noble ones declare, happy is one who is equanimous and mindful. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, imagine a lotus pond where there are growing blue, white, or red lotuses. They grow up out of the water, but do not come above the surface of the water. They would lead their whole lives immersed in the water from their tips to the roots, completely filled with water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness, with the rapture free, with the happiness free from rapture, so that there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King. By passing entirely beyond pleasure and pain, as with the previous passing of joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with the pure bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not filled with the pure bright mind. Great King, Imagine a man covered from the head down by a white cloth so that his body is totally suffused by the white cloth. In the same one way, one suffuses one's body with the pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. 
With a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, having material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Great King, insights into the nature of reality such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can direct and incline it to the various modes of supernormal powers. One can create a mind-made body. Being one, one can become many. Being many, one can become one. One can dive into the earth as though it is water. One can walk on water as though it is earth. One can pass unimpeded through walls and ramparts. One can fly cross-legged through the sky. One can stroke the sun and the moon as mighty as they are. One can hear sounds at a great distance. One can know the minds of others. One can remember past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, these too are fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can direct it and incline it to the ending of the asavas, one can understand, this is dukkha. One can fully understand, this is the origin of dukkha. One can fully understand, this is the cessation of dukkha. One can fully understand, this is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. One can understand, these are the asafas. One can fully understand, this is the origin of the asafas. This is the cessation of the asafas. This is a path of practice that leads to the cessation of the asavas. And one can follow that path of practice all the way to the end and make an end to the asava of sense desire, make an end to the asava of becoming, make an end to the asava of ignorance. And in so doing, great king, one makes a complete end to all dukkha. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, Great King, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this. The King was impressed. Wonderful, marvelous. It's, it's like setting upright something that's been knocked down. It's, it's like pointing out the way to one who is lost. It's like Showing something that is hidden, it's like bringing a light into a room where those who have eyes can see. I go to the Buddha for refuge and to his Dharma and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And then King Ajitasattu got all shamefaced and finally he blurted out, A transgression overcame me, venerable sir. For the sake of rulership, I killed my father, a righteous man and a righteous king. Indeed, a transgression did overcome you, great king, in that you killed your father, a righteous man and a righteous king. But it is good that you admit such a transgression for the sake of your restraint in the future. And then the king said, we must be going. We have many things to do. Do as you see fit, great king. King Ajitasattu saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks. He circumambulated the Buddha, and then keeping the Buddha on his right. He and Jivaka and all the members of the court went back to where the elephants were parked, 
mounted up and rode away. And not long after they had departed, the Buddha said to the monks, this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, then the stainless eye of Dhamma would have opened in him tonight, and he would have attained the fruit of stream entry. But this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now the sutta ends here, but the commentaries go on to say that King Ajitasattu went back to the palace and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And indeed, he did become a great protector of the Dhamma. Three months after the Buddha's death, there was a council of arhats. 500 fully enlightened disciples of the Buddha came together to recite the suttas and the vinaya, the rules for the monks and nuns, and basically codify the Buddha's teaching. And the place they chose to come together was a cave just outside the city of Rajgar. They obviously felt that with King Aditasattu's protection, this was a safe place to come. But King Ajitasattu was an ambitious man. After the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and conquered all of the neighboring kingdoms and built the nucleus of the first great Indian empire. But not all went well for King Ajitasattu. You see, his son killed him. And his grandson killed his son and his great-grandson killed his grandson, and his great-great-grandson killed his great-grandson. And at that point, the people of Magadha said, enough of these father killers. They killed the great-great-grandson and established a new dynasty. So, questions, comments? What, what about the supernormal powers? What did the Buddha really mean? Well, we could probably have a seminar that would go on debating this for quite a few days. These powers are described a number of times in the suttas. There are those who take it very literally, that if you get sufficiently concentrated, you can walk on water, walk through walls, I will say that one time in Sweden, I was able to walk on the water one winter. <laughs> I do walk through walls fairly frequently. I use a thing called a door. Uh, there's a very interesting sutta, not well known. A Brahmin comes to the Buddha and he says, these supernormal powers, they're private experiences. Why should I believe in any miracles? And the Buddha says, you're right. These are private experiences. There's only one miracle that really counts, and that's the miracle of instruction. The instructions for following the spiritual path. The Brahmin was very impressed and became a follower of the Buddha. When the full list of supernormal powers is given... The first one in the list is the mind-made body. We don't know exactly what this entails. I mean, you can read what the commentaries say, but not too sure about the commentaries. What I'm assuming is that you are so concentrated that you have the capacity to basically generate in your imagination another body just like this one and send that body out to walk on water and become many, fly through the air and do all these things. But then you've got to remember I have a background in the sciences, in physics in particular, so I'm a little hesitant to believe things like walking on water and flying cross-legged through the air. 
Well, actually, I got to this side of the pond. I wasn't cross-legged, but I was flying through the air in a metal tube. That's pretty weird. Uh, Anyhow, the ones like knowing the minds of others and hearing sounds at a great distance, uh, perhaps that's some form of ESP. I remember noticing on retreats with Ayakema that my very weak ESP talent actually got a little stronger. It would seem that if you are deeply concentrated, maybe something like this starts to happen. And if you practice the jhanas in a very deep way for an extended period of time, maybe there is something to that. I I don't know. I've had a little bit of that. And as I said, as for remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away, re-arising according to their karma, I tend not to want to take that literally. The best thing I could say about the supernormal powers is the Tibetan story. This man studied with a teacher for some time, and then his teacher said, okay, you've learned what I have to teach you. Go off and practice. So the man went and found a cave in the Himalayas, not too far from town, so he could go into town on alms round. Well, during the next 20 years, he learned to walk on water which meant he could take a shortcut to town, just, you know, walk across the river, get to town a lot easier. One day he's in town, and he hears that his teacher is coming for a visit. And he gets pretty excited, and he goes back to his cave and spiff up his cave or whatever you do when you're going to have visitors. And sure enough, a couple days later, his teacher shows up, and they have a joyful reunion, and then eventually his teacher says to him, well... What have you learned in these 20 years? And he stands up all proud and he walks down to the river and he walks across to the other side and he turns around, walks back across the river, comes back to his teacher and he's grinning real big and his teacher goes, you fool, you just wasted 20 years of your life. There's a bridge a quarter mile upstream. (laughs) I'd say don't waste your time with the supernormal powers. There's uh, better ways to spend it on the spiritual path. The website I mentioned was access to insight, all one word, dot org. It's linked from the homepage of my website, and I will put up my website address before the end of the retreat. <laughs> the fact that somebody could vibrate part of their throat and then you upon hearing that can follow the instructions and actually become free of all dukkha that's a pretty good miracle that there's not really anything more magnificent than that I mean you think about it the fact that we can talk and understand each other I'm up here just sort of vibrating some air and suddenly you're transported to India two and a half thousand years ago? I mean, that's kind of miraculous. So the miracle of instruction is that basically, yeah, someone can carefully lay out the spiritual path like the Buddha did, and if you follow it correctly, your life is better. That's pretty good. Right. So if, you're, if you do such an inhumane deed as killing your father, you'd be blind to the spiritual path, basically. Yes, I think that's correct. At the time of the Buddha, there were five heinous crimes that if you did one of these, you'd punched your ticket to hell. Killing your mother, killing your father, killing an arhant, attempting to kill a Buddha, or creating a schism in the Sangha. So, yeah, when the Buddha says of King Ajatasattu, he's ruined himself. Basically, he can't attain the stream entry experience because he's done such a heinous crime. It's in accord with the worldview at that time. 
But I think it's also quite uh, accurate recognition that King Ajatasattu was so power mad that he'd kill his own father. He wasn't interested in the spiritual path. He wanted to go conquer his neighboring kingdoms, which he did. So the Buddha's assessment was correct that, yeah, he's not really going to do anything on the spiritual path, although he was a protector of the Dhamma. Right, of uh, Milarepa. Yeah, Milarepa did manage to kill quite a few people, including his uncle. Uh, But your uncle is not your father. So from a traditional viewpoint, the other thing to realize that when Milarepa basically extracted his revenge for what his uncle had done to his mother and him, he immediately felt very sorry for it and began seeking some way to, you know, repair the damage he had done. And he wound up studying with his teacher and becoming fully enlightened. So from a traditional standpoint, yeah, he'd done something pretty bad, but he managed to actually get beyond that. But it wasn't so bad that he was doomed to hell. Certainly in Buddhism, there is redemption. There was the story of Anguli Mala, Anguli Finger Mala Necklace. This was a serial killer who had killed supposedly 999 people and was wearing their right index fingers as a necklace. And the Buddha went out and actually sought him out. The farmers would see the Buddha walking along the road, and they'd say, don't go any further, recluse. Angulimala lives that way. He'll kill you. But the Buddha just kept going. And he went into the forest where Angulimala was living, and Angulimala saw him coming, and he thought, ah, my next victim. So he grabbed his sword, his shield, his bow, his arrows, and he went running after the Buddha. But the Buddha just kept walking along at a normal pace, and no matter how fast Angulimala ran... He couldn't catch up to the Buddha. He was like, what? And finally he stopped. He goes, what's going on? And he hollered at the Buddha, stop, recluse, stop. The Buddha just looked over his shoulder and said, I've stopped. It's time for you to stop. Angulimalos, what? He's still walking and he's telling me he stopped. And I'm stopped and he's telling me it's time for me to stop. What do you mean, recluse? What do you mean? The Buddha just keeps walking and he says, I've stopped harming living beings. It's time for you to stop. And Angulimala got it. He threw his weapons into the ditch, got down on his knees and asked to become a monk. He had a stream injury experience right there like that. And so he became a monk. He went back with the Buddha to Jeta's Grove, which is the monastery outside of the city of Savati. Not long after that, the king of Kosala comes riding out of Savati with 500 armed men. And they have to pass by where the Buddha is staying in the monastery. And since King Pasanati was a follower of the Buddha, he stopped, dismounted, and went in to pay homage to the Buddha before he set out to kill Angulimala with his 500 men. When the Buddha sees him coming, he goes, Great king, is King Bimbasara attacking you? Why do you have so many armed men with you? King Pasanati said, There's a serial killer in my realm. His name is Angulimala. He's killing people by the tens, the twenties, the thirties, the forties. And I need to put him down. But we've tried before and we are unable to capture him. But I have to go out again. And the Buddha says, Uh, Great king, this is Angulimala right over here. 500 swords appear. <laughs> the Buddha's like, okay. King Pasanati is here standing on him. He goes, are you Angulimala? And the monk says, that used to be 
how I was known, but my name is now Ahimsa, which means harmlessness. And the king shakes his head, says, put away your swords. And he says to the Buddha, we've tried with all our weapons to tame this man, and yet you tamed him with just your words. You are a great one indeed. And he saluted the Buddha, and they all went back to the town. Angulimala practiced well and eventually became fully enlightened, an arhat. But sometimes when he would go on alms round, somebody would throw a rock at him or a dirt clod. And more than once he came back with his head cut and his alms bowl broken. The Buddha would say to him, bear it up, Brahman, bear it up. This is the result of the evil karma you did, but at least... You've managed to overcome that and will not spend eons in hell. So there's redemption possible if you don't get too bad. (laughs) But if you're willing to kill your parents, I mean, you must have some ambition other than the spiritual path. There's an interesting article by Richard Gombrich that points out that more than likely, Angulimala was an early follower of Shiva, the Hindu god of destruction, and he was just out doing the destruction thing until the Buddha set him right. Anything else? Not put any pressure on me. (laughs) Yeah, it seems that there was a better teacher around than there is these days. Um, Last time I read through the suttas, which I was doing when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge over the last couple years, uh, they only have two Dharma talks a week, so if there wasn't a Dharma talk, I got one from the Buddha. I was looking for the enlightenment stories in there where someone becomes fully enlightened. And I collected them all up there on my website. And I noticed that, yeah, like you say, there's a number of times where people hear one Dharma talk and become enlightened. Most of those Dharma talks were basically aimed at a particular person. And the Buddha led them along, and then when he knew their minds were ready, he taught them the Four Noble Truths, and that's when they had the stream entry experience. So the impression you get is that he used his psychic powers to really track where they were. So perhaps we need teachers who are very skilled at knowing the minds of others so they can give Dharma talks that take people to the stream entry experience. Of course, they probably have to be fully enlightened, and we see, do seem to have somewhat a shortage of that. So. But yeah, it doesn't seem to happen as often these days. hard to say how much of the stream entry experiences are mythical versus reality. Uh, Some of them, yeah, it seems a little mm, not quite so believable. And some of them, it's like, wow, yeah, guess so. Um, There has been some textual analysis done looking at the suttas, and this is a lot of material, 11 or 12,000 of them, something like that, trying to stratify. It's pretty clear that not all of the suttas were composed at the same time. The language, as I mentioned earlier, varies, some of it more archaic than others. And there's a book called Studies in the Origins of Buddhism by uh, G.C. Pandi that really looks at a lot of suttas and tries to figure out which ones are early, which ones are late, which ones are composite, and which ones we can't tell. Well, the latter category where we can't tell is by far the largest category. 
But looking at, in reading that book while I was reading the suttas, I began to get a feel for at least what Pandi's criteria were for what's early and what's late. And clearly there's some material in there that not so trustworthy. It does seem to have more of a mythological element, things like that. And then there's some other material in there that, yeah, this seems to be pretty real. But to try and tease out which ones of the stream entry ones are early, late, so forth, I've not attempted that. I did look at some of the ones where the Buddha gives a discourse and someone becomes fully enlightened. Uh, Sometimes you hear teachers say, you know, the Buddha gives a discourse and a lot of people get enlightened and this happens all the time. Well, actually, there are only 14 suttas where someone gives a discourse and someone gets fully enlightened. Actually, I think it's 13. Nine are discourses by the Buddha. Uh, Two are by Sariputta, his right-hand disciple, and two are by other senior monks. Of those 13 suttas, one of them clearly is a much later composition. Uh, Real hellfire and brimstone thing. So, you know, it's like you can dismiss that one. The others, yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. They could be authentic. They could be, you know, something that was made for purposes to impress people. So it, it really is not easy to tell amongst the stuff. Some of it you can, yeah, dismiss, but to tell what's remaining, it's, it's quite difficult. What really matters, though, is well, how's your practice going? I mean, I'm not going to be able to give you a discourse where you get enlightened, so you're going to have to do this on your own. Right. Every time someone gave a discourse and someone got fully enlightened, the person or the audience was very experienced. They had all been doing years of spiritual practice. There were no newcomers. For the stream entry experiences, not necessarily so. I mean, King of Ambasara hadn't been doing any spiritual practice, though he was obviously interested in that since he saw the recluse and he sent his minister to follow the recluse, see what he was up to. But he hadn't been practicing as far as we can tell. And there are other people that had not been practicing that had the stream entry experience. But certainly for the full enlightenment, the discourses were given to people that had done a lot of practice. Stream entry is the first level of enlightenment. Enlightenment comes in four levels, stream entry being first. It uproots three of the ten fetters that bind us to the wheel of samsara. The most important fetter it uproots is called personality view, a belief that there is an entity in here, a belief in a self a belief in the little guy sitting behind your eyeballs that's pulling the levers and directing. When I raise my arm, this little guy is pulling a lever, you know, that sort of belief. You have a deep enough experience of not-self that you no longer believe that. It still feels like there's a self there, but you know better. So that's the first fetter that goes. Also, at that time, the belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals is uprooted. In other words, you no longer believe that rites and rituals will get you enlightened. You only got to where you got because you were practicing. You weren't doing prostrations or lighting candles or whatever, saying prayers. It was practice, particularly insight practice, that got you to that. And the third of the fetters that's uprooted is doubt. I mean, what's to doubt? You did what the Buddha told you to do. You got the result he said you'd get. Nothing to doubt. So those are uprooted with the stream entry experience. That still leaves greed and hatred as two more fetters. They are weakened at the second level and uprooted at the third level, leaving only five fetters left. 
what's called desire for form and desire for formlessness. This is often considered to be rebirth in some of the heavenly realms. We're not really sure what's meant by it. And there is ignorance, restlessness, and conceit. Conceit means conceiving of a self. So at the first level, you know there's not a self, but it still feels like a self. And because it feels like a self, you still conceive there's a self in here. The full enlightenment experience is uprooting that sense of self completely. So that's the four levels. Stream entry is the first one. 